You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. So many thanks for joining us uh, on this podcast on osteoporosis. My name is Yik Man. I'm one of the rheumatology trainees in South London. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Sarah Hardcastle. She's a consultant rheumatologist at the Royal National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases in Bath. She has a specialist interest in osteoporosis and metabolic bone diseases. She's a current co-convener for the BSR Osteoporosis Specialist Interest Group. So the purpose of this podcast is to provide members with an update on the new developments within osteoporosis. And I thought it'd be best to start off with one of the newest drugs that's available in osteoporosis. Um, so we're going to start by talking about romosozumab. So over to um, Sarah. Um, so would you like to give us a slight overview on romosozumab, please? Yep, no problem. So romosozumab is primarily an anabolic agent. And that's quite exciting because, as you probably know, to date, the only anabolic treatment that's been available in the UK for osteoporosis has been teriparatide. So as the MAB name suggests, romosozumab is actually a humanized monoclonal antibody that acts by inhibiting sclerostin, a protein found in osteocytes. And sclerostin's normal role is to inhibit bone formation by osteoblasts. So by blocking it, bone formation is promoted and hence the anabolic effect. And one of the reasons to be excited about romosozumab is that as well as its anabolic action, it also has a weaker anti-resorptive effect. And that gets around the problem of coupling of bone formation and bone resorption, which has tended to limit the effect of existing therapies because promoting bone formation would ordinarily lead to a corresponding increase in bone resorption. So it can actually be thought of as a dual action drug. Excellent. And how is it given and what is the duration of treatment at the present moment? So it's given as two subcutaneous injections every month and the current license is for 12 months of treatment and afterwards treatment would be followed up sequentially with an anti-resorptive agent in the same way as we would with teriparatide now. Excellent. Um, so there's been quite a lot of research behind its use. So what, what is the evidence supporting its use currently? So there have been two key studies to date called ARCH and FRAME. So the ARCH study recruited just over 4,000 postmenopausal women, either with, oste- either with osteoporosis and at least one vertebral fracture, or with low BMD and either a hip fracture or at least two significant vertebral fractures. And women were randomised to receive either romosozumab for 12 months, followed by a year of alendronate, or two years of alendronate. And the primary outcome was new fractures, but BMD was also measured. So compared with the control group who just received alendronate, the romosozumab group had a 48% reduction in new vertebral fractures and a 19% reduction in other fractures by the end of the study period. Patients in the romosozumab group also had greater gains in BMD, and those were maintained out to three years of follow-up. The FRAME study was a bit bigger, recruiting just over 7,000 women, all of whom had osteoporosis on their DEXA scans. But in this study, women with a prior hip fracture or severe or multiple vertebral fractures and those with very low BMD, i.e. T-scores less than minus 3.5, were excluded. Again, the study ran for two years and the treatment group received 12 months of romosozumab followed by 12 months of denosumab, while the control group received 12 months of placebo injections followed by 12 months of denosumab. The primary outcome was new vertebral fractures. So within the first 12 months, 16 patients in the treatment group and 59 patients in the control group had a new vertebral fracture, and that equated to a reduction of 73% in the treatment group. 
During the second year, with both groups on denosumab, there were five new vertebral fractures in the treatment group and 25 in the control group, and that equated to a 75% cumulative risk reduction in the treatment group by the end of the study. However, there was no significant difference in this study in non-vertebral fractures between the groups. So it is worth noting that neither of these studies included men, but they were included in another study called BRIDGE, which looked at the effect of romosozumab on lumbar spine BMD, but not specifically fracture risk. Excellent. So the findings from both the ARCH and the FRAME study sound very positive, but I think with mm. all new medications, we're always worried about side effects, contraindications. So are you able to just to discuss that in a bit more detail, please? Yeah, of course. So according to the SPC, the main um, contraindications would be pre-existing hypocalcemia. So that would need to be corrected prior to starting treatment, but also a history of previous MI or stroke. And this is because the ARCH study observed an imbalance in the incidence of cardiovascular event events, including both cardiac ischemic events and cerebrovascular events between the two groups with a greater incidence in the treatment group. So it's worth noting that this wasn't observed in the FRAME study, and one of the potential explanations might be that alendronate, which the control group in this study obviously received for a bit longer, is actually associated with a reduced risk of these events, as has been previously suggested. However, this does require more investigation, so for the time being, caution is required. Great. And just a little bit about the side effects, um, if that's possible. Mm, so um, I haven't had any personal experience of, of using romosozumab as yet, obviously, because it's not yet um, available. But um, with reference to the SPC, so the things that are sort of mentioned as common potential side effects um, include nasopharyngitis um, and arthralgias. Um, and there's also a small risk of hypersensitivity reactions to the medication, which would be common to any monoclonal antibody treatment. It's probably also worth just touching on the issue of osteonecrosis of the jaw and atypical femoral fractures, because, as I mentioned, you know, there is this dual effect with including an anti-resorptive action. So it's worth considering whether these are something we should be worried about. So obviously, you know, this, from the studies that have been done so far, we're not talking about huge numbers of patients. So we will need to wait and see what emerges in, in clinical practice. So there were... Um, cases of ONJ and atypical fractures um, occurring in both the ARCH and the FRAME studies. However, obviously, both of these studies did include anti-resorptive treatments, as well as the romosozumab, so denosumab in one and, and alendronate in the other. So in FRAME, um, which was obviously the um, uh, comparison with denosumab, um, so there was, there was one case of ONJ occurring during the romosozumab um, treatment period. Um, and there was also one atypical fracture, although in the discussion it was mentioned that this patient had possibly had some pain in the area of the fracture in advance. So there's a question as to whether that might not actually have been an entirely new um, effect due to the drug. Um, in the ARCH study, um, there were no um, cases of ONJ or atypical fractures during the initial 12 month period on romosozumab alone. Um, so that's relatively reassuring, but there is still going to be a degree of risk um, from this medication. So you mentioned earlier that this is the second anabolic agent we have um, for the treatment of osteoporosis. So where do you think romosozumab will fit in with the treatment pathway um, and how does it kind of compare um, against teriparatide? 
Mm. So it's important to stress that in England, romasozumab is not yet available for use because we're actually awaiting the outcome of its NICE assessment. So this will hopefully clarify where it will fit within treatment, if indeed it does get approval. Um, the other thing we're expecting imminently is the updated version of NOG, and that's the National Osteoporosis Guideline Group's guidance on the management of osteoporosis. So up until now, anabolic therapies have been reserved for the most severe cases of osteoporosis, as the current NICE guidance states that most patients have to have either failed treatment with other agents, either in terms of intolerance, adverse effects or lack of clinical response before it can be tried. However, we now realise that the order treatments are given in osteoporosis patients is quite important. And to get the maximum benefit from anabolic treatment, it's actually preferable to give this treatment first before anything else is given and then follow up with your anti-resorptive treatment afterwards. So we are expecting that the new NOG guidance might promote earlier use of anabolic treatments such as romasozumab in selected patients at very high fracture risk. Though, as I said, this is currently still awaited. However, in Scotland, romasozumab is available for selected patients now um, via a patient access scheme. And the Scottish National Sign Guidance on Osteoporosis was actually updated earlier this year and does include romasozumab. So this guidance has recommended considering it for women with severe osteoporosis, particularly those with spinal fractures, but who are also at risk of hip fractures. So this may be an indication of where it will fit within treatment pathways elsewhere. So you also asked about the comparison with teriparatide. So there are a number of differences. So as you probably know, teriparatide is a daily injection and it's given for a period of two years, as opposed to romasozumab, which is two injections per month for one year. So there are some differences in terms of administration. You're also probably aware that teriparatide can't be given to patients with a history of skeletal malignancy or prior radiotherapy to the skeleton whereas romasozumab is not contraindicated in this setting, so it would potentially offer a treatment option to this group of patients. Also, currently only one course of teriparatide can be given in a patient's lifetime, and that's due principally to these malignancy concerns. So romasozumab could be useful for patients who've already received teriparatide, but still remain at high risk of fracture. In terms of relative efficacy, it's important to point out that we don't have any head-to-head -head data comparing the two drugs. However, romasozumab has shown evidence of hip fracture risk reduction in the ARCH study I mentioned earlier, whereas the evidence for teriparatide is strongest for vertebral fracture risk reduction. Great. Thank you very much for that excellent overview on romasozumab. Um, you mentioned earlier that there's a kind of dual action um, with romasozumab which will obviously affect bone turnover. Turnover. I think it'll be useful to discuss bone turnover markers now and their use in clinical practice, if that's all right with you. Of course, yeah, no problem. Great, so, so there are a multitude of bone turnover markers available on the market. I just wanted to check and ask which ones you tend to use in your clinical practice and is there any specific reason as to why? Mm. So um, as you probably know, bone turnover markers can be measured in either the blood or in the urine. And some are markers of bone formation, whereas others are markers of bone resorption. So which ones are used can depend to a large extent on the availability of different markers in different labs. Um, so personally, I tend to use CTX as a measure of bone resorption and P1MP as a measure of bone formation, because that's what we have available to us locally in Bath. Um, and these are both measured in the blood. Um, and these are also the markers of bone resorption and formation that the International Osteoporosis Foundation have recommended as the reference study standards for inclusion in studies. So they are potentially quite good ones to choose. 
Great. So we can obviously request bone turnover markers in quite a wide range of settings. And But which patients do you find it particularly helpful to request them? And how does it impact on your clinical decisions? Mm-hmm. Okay. So there are a few different scenarios where I personally would consider measuring bone turnover markers. And um, so I'll just go through a few of those. So number one would be an unexpected decline in BMD in a patient on treatment um, after first checking adherence to treatment, of course, in order to help decide whether to switch to an alternative treatment. So an example would be a patient who's had a wrist fracture during their first five years on alendronate, whose DEXA has shown perhaps a decline in BMD at one measurement site but not at others Um, and if the CTX for that patient was found not to be suppressed then I might be more likely to change to another treatment. It can also be quite useful to use a bone turnover marker where you don't have a baseline BMD measurement for a patient in order to decide whether or not a treatment already received has been effective. So that's sort of the first situation. So the second situation would be um, following a treatment holiday in order to decide when treatment should be restarted. And that would be particularly um, with intravenous selenate. Um, and I would find that would be particularly useful in younger patients in whom it's desirable to space out the treatment courses as much as possible because you're looking at quite long term treatment or in patients who've already received multiple previous infusions. So the third situation is um, prior to treatment with teriparatide, um, and it's part of our protocol for teriparatide to to measure the bone turnover markers at baseline and then um, a few months into treatment to allow monitoring of treatment effect. And here there is good evidence that the magnitude of increase in P1MP predicts later increases in BMD with the drug. And then the sort of fourth case, which is perhaps a little bit less evidence-based and a bit more controversial, is that in cases with a strong suspicion of a secondary cause, particularly, for example, very young patients with osteoporosis, to help with diagnosis and to consider treatment. So, for example, knowing that a young adult's osteoporosis is associated with increased bone turnover could potentially support treatment with an anti-resorptive agent in the right clinical scenario. So that would be another situation where I might might measure it. But um, I'm aware definitely that there are centres in the UK who use bone turnover markers much more routinely for monitoring treatment adherence and treatment effect. So you can measure them, you know, before and after commencing an oral bisphosphonate in order to see if the patient's adherent and check that the treatment's working. And that's useful because the bone turnover marker changes happen a lot earlier than any changes on DEXA to BMD. Um, So, you know, it may be that this approach is going to be adopted more widely in the future. We'll have to wait and see. Great. So you you touched on it briefly already that you would check kind of baseline bone turnover markers, specifically the P1MP before you start teriparatide. Mm. Are there any other situations where you would check the baseline turnover markers before starting other treatments? Mm. So I would personally rarely request them in patients who are treatment naive unless there was a good reason to think about a sort of rare secondary cause, as I mentioned above. Um, It can be useful to measure them before switching treatments, as I described earlier. Um, And if you do want to use them as a sort of adherence check, then one approach is comparing a pre-treatment value to a a sort of value a few months into a treatment course. Um, Although there are also reference ranges that you can refer to for that purpose if if necessary. Um, But I should point out that there is generally felt to be too much inter-individual variation in bone turnover markers to make them particularly useful for diagnosis. That isn't really one of their current uses. Yeah. And just expanding on that a little bit more, are there any other downsides to using bone turnover markers that we should be aware of? 
Mm. So um, one sort of practical difficulty is that they are variably affected by food intake and circadian rhythms, as well as quite a number of other factors. So CTX in particular needs to be measured in the fasting state and also on an early morning sample. And the sample also needs to reach the lab fairly quickly. So at our centre, we tend to ask patients to attend hospital for the blood test rather than go to their GP surgery. And this can be difficult for some patients, for example, the frail and elderly patients patients. So I do know that some centres tend to use P1MP as their primary bone marker in order to get around some of these sampling issues and of course bone formation and bone resorption because they're coupled you don't necessarily always need to measure both so one can give a good indication um, of the overall situation. So it's also important to be aware that bone turnover markers can remain elevated for up to nine months after a fracture. So measuring them during this time frame won't give an accurate picture of overall skeletal turnover. And that's usually what we're aiming to find out. Um, other things to mention are that some turnover markers such as CTX are not useful in patients with advanced chronic kidney disease because they're renally excreted. And P1MP isn't really useful to assess treatment response in patients on steroids because the steroids themselves result in a reduction in the level of this marker. So if people want to read a good review article on the subject of bone turnover markers, then I definitely recommend the one by Estelle et al, which was published in the European Journal of Endocrinology in 2018. So that gives a really good overview of sort of the clinical use of bone turnover markers and a lot of these issues that we've been discussing. Excellent. Um, I didn't actually realise there were so many um, downsides to uh, bone turnover markers, so quite important things to be wary of. Yeah. Um, so now we're just going to move on. You mentioned um, earlier that there's a pre-review kind of new NOG guidance coming out in England. Um, do you have any thoughts on what changes might be included in this update and how it might change our management of patients with osteoporosis? Mm. So taking into account sort of topics of discussion at recent osteoporosis meetings and also the updated sign guidance for Scotland that I mentioned earlier, I think there are probably a few themes that we can expect to appear in the new guidance. So the first is around the identification of very high risk patients for fracture um, with a view to the earlier use of anabolic therapies in this particular group in order to maximise gains in BMD. So I would expect that to be in there. Um, the second is around the formulation of long-term treatment plans for patients, and that would include things like treatment holidays and also the particular issues around starting and stopping denosumab, um, which you may well be aware of. Um, the other topic that's been generating quite a lot of interest is around sort of opportunistic identification of vertebral fractures on imaging done for other reasons and incorporating this into fracture liaison services in order to pick up more patients who might benefit from therapy. So I expect that the guidance might well touch on this as well, but obviously we'll have to, to wait and see um, what's in there. Great, super. Thank you very much for your time. So in summary, we've covered several topics and we've talked about romosozumab, we talked about the use of bone turnover markers in clinical practice. We've had a brief discussion about um, the up, up, upcoming NOG guidance that's due to be updated. Um, so hopefully that's provided some uh, food for thought for our members um, and things to look into if they're interested. 
And were there any final words from you at all, Sarah? Uh, yes, so just to say that if um, people do want to listen to any more podcasts on the topic of osteoporosis, if this has whetted your appetite, then I can definitely recommend a podcast called Bone Up um, by Professor David Armstrong and Dr Richie Abel, and that covers lots of um, topics related to bone. I think there have been about five episodes so far, and um, so I definitely recommend um, having a listen. Great. Thank you very much for joining me again today, Sarah. That's absolutely fine. Thanks very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.